Good morning, church. If you've got a Bible on you, turn it to uh, Isaiah chapter 46. All right, today's reading, Isaiah chapter 46. Bell bows down, Nebu stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we may be alike? Who, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes them into gold. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his troubles. Remember this and stand firm. Call it to mind, your transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I will bring my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Let's pray. Lord, let your word be heard today, and your kingdom glorified. Add your blessing to the word, and give me the ability to relay this message. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church. In case you all don't know me, my name is Ben. I'm one of the elder candidates here. I was asked by a certain pastor, as this certain pastor does, to come up here and preach. And I can tell you when I was asked, this being my first time, I was pretty nervous, pretty scared. And I had to ask myself, why was I nervous and why was I scared? I've done quite a bit of public speaking in my time, and I've achieved quite a bit of big achievements. I was going to school to be a biology teacher where I would have had to preach to the worst audience, teenagers. I have taught hundreds of classes on weapon systems, and I have led Marines into firefights. So why does this have me up here shaking? Well, it's because it's the Word of God. Everything that I have taught up to this moment was meaningless. I can't come up here and just teach how an M240 works or how fast the cyclid rate or how many bullets can go through it before you melt the barrel. This is the most important thing anyone can teach. So with that being said, I may read a lot from this. I'll try my best to not be monotone. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> and if I pause for a minute, it's because I'm learning how to work an apple and I don't like apples very well. As you can see, it is my wife's, and it is colored in flowers. <laughs> All right. So the theme of this sermon is, how big is your God? 
which is what I'm alluding to, the importance of teaching the Word. If you have a right understanding of how big is your God, standing up here and teaching is a pretty weighty thing for a simpleton like myself. I don't know how Travis does it every week. But that being said, let's get a little background on Isaiah so we know what this chapter is about. Isaiah ministered for more than 40 years, starting around-ish 740 B.C. During this time, there was a lot of political strife going on. Um, the Assyrians were causing this political strife. Babylon was there, but they're not quite on the scene as we know them to be the superpower yet. Uh, one of the things that Isaiah was preaching about in this, and a lot of it throughout the book, uh, is the capture of Judah. We see in the book of Isaiah multiple warnings and predictions of Babylon that would fall on deaf ears. We even see Isaiah calling by name the king that would take Judah into captivity and what king would free them. Now, I just want to add there, this is hundreds of years before this took place. He knew their names. We even see, where was I here? Isaiah punished them for betrayal. This chapter is a warning about how Judah was behaving as an adulteress and how God was going to send an army to punish them for their betrayal. But in his warning of exile or captivity, we see it being presented with a promise. And that's not just this chapter, that's every chapter in Isaiah. And if it's not in the chapter, it's in the very next chapter. There is, this is going to happen because of your adulterous, prideful ways. But the very next chapter is, but I, I will save you. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11 says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger for the sake of my praise. I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give another. In Isaiah, we see the constant offense of turning to a false god for profit or protection. For not profit like I'm profiting, but for gain of money or protection. The people who are supposed to trust God seek a God they create for the security and provision. And by giving it worship, they are putting that thing that they made on par with God. I might add that when you hear me say they, you can say we. We are truly, if we are truly honest with ourselves, we would see how easy it is for us to turn to idols. Do you ever read the Old Testament and think to yourself, man, they weren't that smart. How did they not see it? We don't either. We're not smarter than them. We can also see in Isaiah God's jealousy for his people and how he deals fiercely with those sharing his glory with idols made by man. So let's take a minute here to stew on that statement. Why does this upset God? Or better stated, why does it anger the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, alpha and omega, the one who created everything from nothing, the one who made a covenant of salvation and a plan to execute it before time began, the one who wrote your name in the book of life, the one who wrote your name in the book of life before he set the sun in the sky, the one who keeps the ebb and the flow of the planet in order, the one who created man from the dust and then breathed life into his body, the one who calls himself the Lord of hosts, a ruler of all the nations. Well, it's simple. 
He did all these things, and he will not allow anyone to steal his glory. He also entered into a covenant with his people, and chasing idols is in itself adultery, adultery against the Lord. The theme of the sermon is how big is your God? Because I think a lot of the time when we struggle with hard questions or hard ideas, the question can simply be answered with that question. How big is your God? Do you define him as a God that can bring existence to bear simply by speaking it and is in control of feeding the morning birds and the baby lions, a God who plans in advance the events of human activity and uses the nation to do his will? Or is your God simply a talisman that you have to rub it the right way to get that house or that job you want or to provide you with some mystical insight to make a wise decision? So this brings me to my first point. Point number one, your idols are dead and burden you. Look at verse one and two. Bell bows down, Nabu stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. Bel, or Baal, was the patron god of Babel, and Nabu was his son and god of Borsippa, a nearby city. These two gods were paraded around the city every year, and the god of wisdom, Nabu, was supposed to write on tablets or tables of wisdom that would show the will of the gods for that year. I just want to pause here. When I was doing research for this, I found it very interesting that they took these idols through the streets and they would write, they would have a godly finger write on tablets of wisdom for Babylon for what was going to happen that year. Do we remember how Babylon was destroyed? The night when God's finger wrote on the wall, tonight they will fall. Now let's discuss these idols for a second. In Isaiah, uh, Bel and Nabu are the two great false gods of Babylon. Bel was also called Marduk. Their names might sound familiar uh, to you as a part of the name of Belshazzar for Bel and Nebuchadnezzar, Nabu. Bel meaning Lord, Nabu meaning the god of wisdom. Uh, were carried by animals through the city, worn out and exhausted. These gods could not come into the city on their own merit. They could not climb onto a donkey and guide it into a city. They could not walk their own donkey into a city. They were born from from man, made by craftsmen. They're good luck charms that could not even predict the coming fall of their own treasured city that Isaiah predicted via God more than a century and a half before. They were neither Lord nor were they wise. These made idols were a burden to the people through false sacrifice and even burden the animals they were on. Chapter 44, verse 12 says, The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with strong arms. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. Verse 14 through 17 talks about the chapter, uh, the carpenter chopping down a great tree. He uses some of it to warm his house. He uses some more of it to cook his food. Then he takes the leftovers and says, I'll fashion a god out of this. And then he gets on his knees and he prays to it. Mind you, we all know who nurtured that tree. That tree was planted, grown, 
provided by the Lord. So that way, one day, a man could come along and chop it down, build it, get on his knees, and pray to his own creation. These idols are dead constructions that hinder the soul with burdens. They had to be carted around and led. Some had to feed them, some had to feed them, sacrifice children to them, and protect them from invaders. Now, I don't know if you've all seen it, but there's a meme going around right now on the internet. There was a flood in India a while back, and there's this, this Hindu lady. The first thing she does is she grabs her life-size, you know, yay-size idol, picks it up, and she starts carrying it out of the church or their seat. Because why? She had to protect and save her God. And so it's a picture of her crying, holding, and taking care of her God because she had to lead her God out of this situation. But we see the God of Israel led by the Jews, or led the Jews by a pillar of smoke out of a defeated Egypt, and then suddenly, with the, uh, and then sustained them with food and water. He healed them and kept their garments together. This God relied on nothing from man, because this God needs nothing. But we rely on him for our very breath. Look down at verse 3 through 4. Listen to me, house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been sustained from the womb, carried along since birth. I will be the same until your old age. I will bear you up when you turn gray. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will bear and rescue you. The old idols must be carried around and led by beasts, and we worship them while God sustains and carries us. How could anyone worship such a novel trinket? How could people who, who were chosen by God, who were pulled out of Egypt, do such a thing? Well, it's simple for us, not just that, or it's, it's a question for us, not just them. Ask yourself, why do we as modern people do this? Why do we put science above God? Why do we think God is incapable of creating the world in six days? I mean, isn't that just poetry, right? Sure, he's a God, but six days? Well, now you've just minimized the power of God. We use sinful acts of sex as a sacrifice to the need, to the needy deity of ourselves, to please at the cost of our own soul. We make idols out of ourselves and take offense as a victim to anything we disagree with as if we are that important. We think flags hold some superpower that keeps all the other nations at bay simply by flying it and negating the very title, Lord of Hosts. Then when we find our nation in peril and we lose sleep, hoping we are on the right and our nation is still the greatest simply by the virtue of our own worship. People that call themselves Christian try to marry other religious beliefs in our faith and add burdens to their very conscience. God's word is simply not enough. We wear our lucky charms on game day to empower our Lord of the ball, and we skip church to witness our greatest team conquer the enemy, depriving ourselves of worshiping the one true God. So why? Why do we do this? I would like to propose, aside from our sin nature, it's because we don't have the right fear of God. When you hear the word fear of God, it's twofold. It's the fear that can strike terror in one. 
the fear that Isaiah had when he was standing in the throne room in the presence of the Lord and he thought he would die right there on the spot when he saw the absolute awe of who God is. Knowing what a sinful person he is. There is the fear of God that should make us tremble in respect to our own sins. Then there is also the fear of God that has a proper understanding of his greatness. And this gives a reverence for God. Think of a reverence that the seraphim had in the throne room as their wings covered their eyes and their feet and they sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We should have a fear that the Lord reminds us of the wrath towards a fallen people, but have a reverence to his greatness. And when you have a proper fear of the Lord, your response is, fall on your knees and say, thy will be done. Our culture has lost what it means to have reverence for anything. Nothing has meaning and nothing impresses. In our current culture, since we have no reverence for God, we avoid anything that is truth because we have our own truth. And we have zero fear for anyone or anything while pridefully wallowing in our own sins, covering ourselves in rainbow flags. So why do we have any fear? Why would we have any fear of any God, especially if we blindfold ourselves and say they all look the same? This takes me to my next point. Point number two. There is no other like the Lord. So at this point, I can make some high-minded argument or bring up some great theology, but it's really hard to beat the Lord's rhetorical questions. I don't know if you all know this, but my favorite book is the book of Job because when the Lord asks a rhetorical question, it hits home. It lets you know that I am here, I am the creator, and you are my creation. So Job 38 starts out with, God coming onto the scene, and he's saying, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? That question should hit hard to someone questioning the potency of God. Now back to the question, no, no one is like God. And this is the point of the theme of this topic. How big is your God? Because if you can answer that question with the name of someone or think of someone like Buddha, science, or yourself of equal value, then you're living in denial. You yourself can't even function apart from your morning coffee. Buddha was a starved, deranged man that believed you had to be reincarnated, or the gurus had to be reincarnated consistently to teach over and over his people because of their up and down fall, the evolution of their spiritual journey. Doesn't sound like a solid religion to me. I can't even function apart from my morning coffee. Verse six through seven says, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his troubles. 
We see again the burden of our self-actualized idols and how we must work to make them work, and then that doesn't even work. Our God tells us to pray to him, to seek him, to trust in him, and he will provide for us. Not wants of our hearts, but what he has aligned the needs in accordance of his will. He feeds us with his word, and he keeps us with his promise. These idols only fill our time in false hope that if we rub that lamp the right way, we'll get that job or perfect family that we want. Is your idol like this, God? Verse 8 and 9 say, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. No, there is no none like God, like this, but the one true God. We hope our idols will keep us centered in our zen, but God created everything from nothing. So what does Isaiah have to say to show that there is no other like God? Well, it's in the next verse. He shows us how God is not just a regional God, but the God. Verse 11 through 12, or, uh, 10 through 11 says, Declaring from the end of the beginning and from the ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will do it. Can any one thing in all of time or history make this claim? Can a man create something physical to turn to and give that thing authority? This brings me to point number three. There's four points, by the way, just in case anyone's wondering. The Lord of hosts is in control. uh, Yeah, the Lord of hosts is in control. I had to meditate on this verse a little bit because when writing this sermon, I had, the, I had the idea of the fear of the Lord sink in. Verse 10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not, uh, things not done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. This is an Alpha and Omega statement. This is a statement that reminds us that by his very declaration, the beginning began and by his very declaration, he determined the end of everything. I don't know about you, but I struggle just to start an IKEA project that's half assembled already for me. (laughs) But here is God simply speaking creation into order. Can Buddha say, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose? No. Like I said, he believed believed that the gurus had to keep getting reincarnated to teach people because they struggled too much to get it. He believed that they'd move up and down the spiritual ladder based on their successes and failures. Can our self-worship lead to true feelings of being a good person, or do we still cringe in quiet time of all our failures we have? We're not capable of even escaping our own standard of judgment. But God says in verse 11, Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have proposed it, and I will do it. Now, being on this side of history, we can see God does what he says. This verse was talking about King Cyrus coming to conquer Babylon. Remember, this happened a long time after Isaiah. Isaiah said by name it was going to be King Cyrus. God said he sent them. Why? He is the Lord of hosts. He is in control, and guess what? It happened. 
We must understand this before understanding anything. God is in control of everything, and when I say everything, what I really mean is everything. He holds the tides at their shorelines. He keeps the moon in orbit, and he feeds the young lion, and he even keeps your very heart beating. Understanding that should give you a true fear of the Lord, but we must admit that to understand that. I love this quote from Spurgeon on this chapter. Nothing in the past has shaken the foundation of our faith. Nothing in the present can move it. Nothing in the future will undermine it. Whatever may occur in the ages to come, there will always be good reason for believing in Jehovah and his faithful word. The great truths he has revealed will never be disproved. The great promises he has made will never be retracted. The great purposes he has devised will never be abandoned. The Lord is in control, and there is nothing we can do to thwart that. And even better, we should take comfort in it. End quote. So what do we do with this? This knowing that there is no other God but God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord who is in control. Look at it, verse 12 through 13. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. We listen, that's what we do. And we listen means we turn our stick nests, or necks away from sin and go to the one true God. These verses here are a promise that God of all of creation is also the God of redemption. So this is point number four. The Lord of your salvation the Lord is the Lord of salvation. Verse 12 is talking about how far from God his people have strayed. They had no righteousness in them. But verse 12, he says he will put the righteousness on his people. Why? For his glory. And we know already that God will accomplish his tasks. He will have his glory after we see it in this, or he will have his glory. After we see it in this chapter how Israel was stubborn, God says he will keep his promise, a promise of salvation. This salvation is through his son, Jesus Christ. The Lord himself will bring his righteousness and salvation into the world. The Alpha and Omega became man to live the perfect life we, w we could not, and then died and was resurrected to pay for the wickedness and bring about eternal life for his people. We know Christ accomplished his work for our salvation on the cross and that the promises of his physical kingdom is coming. Because we know that God is in control and all of all and does as he says. Christ was therefore the beginning, was there in the beginning, and will be there in the end. Nothing will thwart his plan. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without was not anything made that was made. In conclusion, Christ was in the beginning with a plan for redemption before Adam was even made. We are all fallen adulterers. But the Lord gave us grace abundantly. We must repent of our sins, seek him with all of our being, and take down our idols that burden us, even those ones in high places. Those idols are nothing, and our God is larger than we can measure, in control of all things, and worthy of our absolute worship. Let's pray. Lord, it is a blessing to hear your word and know that it is true and from you. Let us take comfort in your promise of eternal life to his people. Only an eternal God could do such a thing. 
Amen. Please stand.